it is my great pleasure today to introduce to you uh, Charles D'Antonio, who is our speaker. Charles is a member of St. Philip's and someone whose artwork uh, I have admired for a long time, and many people at St. Philip's have admired without even knowing, uh, because there is a glorious painting of the presentation at the temple that Charles did some years back that hangs in the narthex of St. Philip's Church. So as you go through the doors to come into worship, that painting is there. Charles was born in New Orleans but had the good sense to make his parents move before he was a year old back to the Low Country and uh, grew up here. He studied at the College of Charleston, Savannah College of Art and Design. His works hang in most of the significant collections in Charleston, uh, as well as in other places in this country and indeed in other countries around the world. Um, he, his most recent commission is he has been commissioned by the diocese to paint uh, Bishop Lawrence's portrait to go into the gallery of Bishop's portraits uh, at the diocese. But Charles is going to come and share with us today some of his story, uh, so please join me in welcoming Charles D'Antonio. I thank you all for being here. It's, it's good to see you again. Um, Brian asked me to talk about beauty and my spiritual life, so if you're trying to follow the thread of my thoughts here, that's what I'm setting out to do, but it's not strictly a spiritual autobiography or a lecture on beauty, but a little of both. Um, I grew up around artists and art. For as long as I can remember, my father was an artist, and I had so much enjoyed meeting all of his artist friends and hanging out in his studio. My earliest memories of church are uh, St. Andrew's in Mount Pleasant, which is just down the street from where we used to live in those days. And I had a kind of childlike belief in God. But looking back, I think perhaps the only reason we were going was to make my grandmother happy, uh, Catherine Dupree. Um, Because when we moved to McClellanville, when I was about 14 years old, we stopped going to church. And it was around that time that, like a lot of boys in their early teens, perhaps, I decided that I didn't need God in my life. Um, And there begins this 10-year period in my life of these growing feelings of existential angst and a kind of severe mortal dread of my impending end. I thought Bob Dylan put it very well, that nothing really matters much. It's doom alone that counts, and steely-eyed death. And so the world became, for me, this very gray, um, ugly, hopeless place. And that is no way to live. But I spent about a year, or I'm sorry, about a decade, in that dark place, and... It was then, at my cousin's wedding, she handed me a Bible, this one, uh, to read from in the ceremony. And when the wedding was finished, I took the Bible home and I started reading it. And for some reason, I found my way to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36, and I read this. 
I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you, and I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And then you will live in the land I gave to your ancestors. And you will be my people, and I will be your God. And I will save you from all your uncleanness. And when I read this, I could just remember this overwhelming reaction to it, that I wanted that. I had been kind of hanging out with the professors in the art department at the College of Charleston in those days, and academia can be sort of a cutthroat, cold-hearted place. And so these words really hit me. So I remember about that time, I started to go back to church, uh, sensing that I needed Jesus. And I just went back to the church of my childhood, St. Andrew's in, in Mount Pleasant. My grandmother lived right down the street from the church, and so I would go to her house in the mornings, and, and we would walk to church together. And I remember attending college courses during the week and then going to church on Sundays and sort of feeling torn between the opposing views that I was being offered in these different places. <clears throat> And as someone who gazed so long into the steely eyes of death, I had this thought, that if I'm trusting God with my life, um, I can trust what I'm reading about God in this book. Because it was, my doubts were focused on the reliability, basically, of God's word. I made a choice, and I chose life. Um, and God changed me. I changed my life. He gave me the gifts of peace. So the existential angst eventually waned. A loving wife and family, work as an artist, work in his church. The lines had fallen in pleasant places for me indeed. And my cup was running over. And that brings us up to about 10 years ago when I was invited to speak at another one of these men's lunches right here. And in those days... I had been riding, riding this wave of success, uh, building my reputation as a portrait artist, uh, and I'd set out on this goal of painting history paintings. And as Brian said, I, I managed to get them hung in some very nice places in Charleston. Um, I even designed and helped build a neoclassical church, which was great fun. Um, I had kind of made it, as they say. But it all came crashing down, as waves tend to do. Uh, The death of my wife's mother, who was someone very dear to me, and a wonderful grandmother to my children. Um, The economic downturn, which naturally means fewer commissions for artists, and a number of other lesser hardships along the way. And I had begun to feel like I was abandoned by God. And then there was my big exhibition. It was an event that we had been anticipating for months. uh, And it was going to set me on a new trajectory for me and my work. And we had great expectations for this and worked very hard in the weeks and months leading up to it. And it flopped. 
Sometimes these things happen. This is, this is not so unusual, but I think what cements that night in my memory is an old mentor of mine from my college days, a very successful artist here in Charleston. Um, he came to the show with this very attractive young assistant in tow and uh, several beers in his belly, and he walked up to me he saw the dismal scene in the gallery, and drawing very near to me, he said, Charles, art is dead. <laughs> Nobody cares about art anymore, and I just try not to be bitter. And I know that wasn't really true. I, I know this man, and he's always done very well. I don't know why he said those things to me. I think he might have been talking about money and fame and how he felt like he didn't have enough of that. Um, but... His words rang in my memory for years. And I could remember myself asking that question over and over again. Does anyone really care? Um, And they darkened my outlook. And I think the reason that they darkened my outlook was because I wanted that money and fame myself. Um, In my pride, I wanted to make my mark in the world. And I was feeling disappointed. I think we always, always want more. This is just who we are. And it all resulted in this prolonged depression. Um, And it was a little later that my father got a diagnosis of terminal cancer. Um, And I just wanted to give you a picture of who he is, since he's so important in my story. Um, This is my father as what appears to be a young Air Force cadet in 1957. And there he is... um, a not-so-relaxed-looking groom about 10 years later in a Catholic wedding. Um, He had a master's degree in economics. Uh, He had trained as a stockbroker in New York City, and they'd sent him down to New Orleans, where I was born, to trade stock. And he was living this very fast-paced, high-pressure life of wheeling and dealing and making money. And he had a cute wife and a healthy son. And then this happened. Uh, on his way to a football game with his buddies, uh, he had a very bad car accident, and his neck was broken. And they told him he'd never walk again. And toward the end of his life, I didn't know this until very late in his life, he lay in that bed for a month before he started to feel tingling in his fingers and toes. And eventually he got movement back and did walk. But he always had a pronounced limp and problems with his right hand. So here he is in his Mount Pleasant studio. Um, let's see, that's it on Pitt Street in what is now the Post House restaurant. It was on the second floor. And he made a good go of it. Uh, here he is 20 years after that in his house that he built in McClellanville. Um, And here again, another 20 years, fast forward to his Charleston studio. And obviously, you can see that he's in a wheelchair. Age and illness had weakened him. And the point of showing you all this is because this is where our stories really converge uh, in in a way that's significant for me today. Uh, In those days, because he was so dependent on people, his mobility had declined so much, he needed help 
doing things around the house. I would go every Thursday morning and help him get in the shower, help him get cleaned up, and then get him set up in his studio so that he could work. And um, I even helped him work on some of his paintings. There we are in front of one of his later commissions. Um, this is the time I really got to know my father as a man, and became, we became friends. We had never really had a close relationship before. And it was this knowing and being known and this forced slowdown of my own very hectic life um, and hurried pace that forced me to take stock of my own life, just as he had had to when he was in his 20s. And then after a couple of years, uh, the cancer took its course, and, um, and he died. So the thing about grief is that it gives a man permission to feel things, uh, particularly uh, if he's been hiding his feelings. And more than that, it softens a man's heart and opens his eyes, I think, to see himself and to see those that he shares his life with in the world around him with a new kind of tenderness. This is what I had in those days. What I had done over the years, both in my zeal to succeed and to make my mark in the world, was to take my eyes off what drew me and my father to art to begin with, which was beauty. So if you Google beauty on your computer at home, just type the word in beauty and then hit the images button. That's what you're going to get. It's just hair and makeup for pages and pages. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but it is telling, I think, when you, when you see this is a kind of metric of the way the world thinks about beauty and the sort of things they focus on. Um, <clears throat> And in my own conversations with people, um, particularly Christians, I, I've asked the question, does beauty matter to you? Or does beauty in worship matter to you? And very often I get the answer that it really doesn't very much. Um, what I've learned over the years in, in my conversations with people is that when I ask this question, most people think I'm talking about that and uh, interior decoration and things like that. But... If you search for, let me see if I need to advance that. If you search for the word beauty in the Psalms, you get this very different result. So this is where I'm going to get a little bit deep into it. Psalms 27, 33, 48, 50, 90, 96, and 147 all contain the words beauty or beautiful, sometimes translated as splendor, majesty, delightfulness, etc., and the major themes of these eight psalms are God's power to save, his creation of a home for us, his desire to restore that home, and a renewed fellowship or harmony with us and restoring harmony between us, the harmony that we might have with each other. <clears throat> and these themes run throughout the psalms. There's no question about that. But these seven psalms really stand apart because they have all these things together along with the idea of beauty and connection with God's activity in the world. So as I struggle to find my way, 
really searching for some way to get a handle on what beauty is from a Christian perspective. I read through these psalms over and over, and I prayed through them and read the commentaries and sort of crisscrossed back and forth, trying to understand what this mysterious idea of beauty was in the psalms. I tried to live into them as they express so powerfully both the human heart and very truly on my own heart, God's heart as well, his desire for his people and for his world. And I believe that God worked in, in all that time with the Psalms to help me begin to articulate an idea of beauty as harmony and abundant life and joy, images that deal with these ideas. Um, let's see. It's interesting because my father was not much troubled by the philosophical side of things. Uh, uh, this painting I did of him uh, before he got very, very ill, um, he got all dressed up for me. I loved putting on his clothes. He's a Carolina fan, as you can see. Um, he was not troubled by this philosophical side of things. He had a much more intuitive understanding of beauty. Uh, but for me, and my particular crisis in life, working through these ideas as a Christian, as an artist, and as a man, uh, has, who's devoted his life to the creation of beauty, became a very urgent and even vital thing to do. And after reading through these things and thinking about them, I ended up with more or less a, a treatise on the subject of beauty. I'm just going to read you a very short excerpt of that. So that in the Psalms, as I said, we read that God not only is beautiful, which is from Psalm 27, but that he beautifies the world, a world marked with ugliness, sin, and he's active in the world and in our lives. And this is what I believe is meant by the beauty of holiness. It's God action, God's action in the world. God, God's holiness is active and restorative, and it vanquishes the ugliness of sin and evil and brings order and abundance and harmony, beauty to our lives and to the world. So for the psalmist, this harmony between God and man and between men restores some of what was lost in the fallen world. And therefore is beautiful. And like the whole Psalter, these psalms that I've mentioned stir the heart with a great breadth of feeling. And we can't help but feel the psalmist's anguish when he calls out to God for salvation. In Psalm 90, he says, Return, O Lord, how long? And have compassion on your servants. <clears throat> and we can't help but share in his joy when he gets an answer. We read in Psalm 147, Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for he has strengthened the bars of your gates and he has blessed your children within you and he makes peace in your borders and fills you with the finest wheat. So the ugliness of sin is all around us, the psalmists are saying, even in our own hearts. But all is not lost because the beauty of holiness is near. God is near. And we can see this beauty and partake in it if we turn to God in praise and trust him to see us through the perilous world. And we see that in what is perhaps David's first psalm that he wrote as king, which is in 1 Chronicles. Um, he's inquired of God and acted according to his will, and he wins this victory over the enemies of Israel. 
brings the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. And then he writes this joyful psalm of celebration and extols God's majesty, his beauty, his power, and his activity. And he exhorts Israel to give him the glory due his name and worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Let us bring ourselves into harmony with God's will, David is saying, and he will restore order and grant us abundant life and joy. So God, who is the source of all beauty, will beautify the world because he's active in the world. And we enter into that beauty when we worship him and we beautify the world when our activity is in harmony with his. Over the centuries, artists have offered their visions of this beauty in countless images, songs, and poems that share the perspective of beauty set before us in these seven psalms. People are captivated by the promise of redemption that shines through such art. I think that art such as this consoles the viewer with this great hope of fulfillment of deep human desire for abundance and harmony. This painting was painted in 1713 by English artist John Constable is such an image. It's just pure beauty. In it, we have probably a couple of families harvesting wheat at the harvest time. The abundance of the previous season's sowing has, has come in, and this gives them hope for the future. And if you look to the back of the painting, behind this line of trees, you can see that the land is divided up in this very orderly and lovely way. And then beyond that, you have the mountains and then the sky, with sun and rain that promises crops for the future. So this is an abundance and harmony the abundance of the land that they live in, and the harmony of the people working together and working with the land. And I mentioned before, it seems to me that grief brings with it permission to feel, even if you're a man. And even though I've been given new life in Christ in all those years before, and even though God had taken me out of the dark place I'd been in and given me a heart of flesh, I'd hardened myself in the adversity that I'd been experiencing, and the grief of losing dad broke through that hardness of heart that I'd taken on, and I saw the beauty of friendship, that being known and knowing someone, and loved the way a father loves a son, and the beauty of the world all around us opened up before me as I looked at it with fresh eyes. So as much as I love the big, important paintings that I get to hang in the buildings, those are a lot of fun to do, I have found a, new, a kind of new freedom to spend time on very different work with very different subjects. Um, let's see if we have one of these here. Yeah, there we go. So this is a painting of uh, the waterway and the marsh. And it's a picture of, again, order and abundance in the world. I've given talks to people about this. Uh, As I've said, I've worked out my ideas in a treatise. I found a new desire, (coughs) excuse me, to teach others how to engage beauty by painting themselves. Uh, 
by going out and placing themselves in the presence of this kind of beauty. And I didn't want to lose this fresh way of seeing things. You know, the tenderness of heart is something that I still wanted. And I knew I needed a way of seeing things if I was going to continue. I needed this way of seeing things. If I was going to continue as an artist and be the kind of man that, uh, that I wanted to be to my wife and my children. So with a good many of years, a uh, good many of years as a deacon and an elder and a wonderful Presbyterian church, I was steeped in truth and a firm, sure foundation to support my faith. I'm tremendously grateful for all that I learned in those years. But with my renewed love for this sort of thing, I increasingly found myself yearning for beauty in worship uh, through circumstances that we never could have foreseen. God led our family, as my son got here first, but we all followed him, to St. Philip's with this emphasis on beauty as well as goodness and truth. Uh, so I'd made a round trip of sorts from the Episcopal Church all the way to the PCA and through that and then back around to the Anglican Church. I find myself very different after all these years. When we all gather together on these Sunday mornings here at St. Philip's in the beautiful building, uh, through the beautiful service and and the beautiful music, I find myself moved as a perhaps would not have been as a younger man. Perhaps you have heard Dostoevsky's famous quote that beauty will save the world. It doesn't sound like it could possibly be true. Um, but if, if you do have doubts about this, I'd like you to reconsider. I'm here to testify in closing that to the profound human need for beauty with its power to color and even enliven goodness and truth, which sometimes appear dull and cold without the potency of this rightful companion of beauty. Even something as simple as that. And through the wonders of his word, as Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. And Jesus points out that the beauty of a field of flowers, when he says consider the lilies, is a testament to God's loving care for us. So I'd like to encourage you to engage beauty when you find it. Put yourself in the way of this. It's an extraordinarily beautiful place that we live in. Take time just to soak it in quietly. Search it out in God's word. Watch for it in God's world. If you aren't already doing so, I encourage you to come to St. Philip's um, to a Sunday service and see the beauty in worship, just as the psalmist urges us to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. So I thank you all for your time and attention. Charles, thank you so much for sharing your heart and your life with us. I think there's much to chew on.
from today's reflection. In case you didn't know this, if you go to the St. Philip's website, all of these uh, men's lunch speakers are recorded, and those are available on the St. Philip's website. And one of the things that I've found to be a very enriching experience is after hearing someone in person, go back in a week or two and listen to it again on the recording, and it will really resonate with you in a different way. So thank you so much for coming today. Let me uh, say a prayer over us before we go. Now may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ the Lord, and the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost be upon you and remain with you always. Amen. Thank you so much for coming. There will be prayer down the hall if you're interested.